Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're talking with John Nottingham, co-president of Nottingham Spurk, the long-standing design collaborative and innovation center located in Cleveland, Ohio. In this episode, we're going to dive into the unique vertical innovation approach that Nottingham Spurk uses to partner with companies to create new products. We're also going to talk about their new partnership with EY that will house their global center for advanced manufacturing and mobility and how innovation is really something you do 24 hours a day, or at least that's what John does. The biggest theme or so what I hope you take away from this conversation is how innovation is a continuous process. It's not a start-stop process that doesn't continue. You must relentlessly drive through to the finish line. Please enjoy my conversation with John Nottingham. All right. Well, I'm very excited to talk about innovation with Mr. John Nottingham. Thanks for thanks for joining, John. My favorite subject. So your firm is fascinating. I'm a Cleveland native and familiar with you, and, and we've gotten to know each other a little bit in the last few years. And I'm a big fan of design and, and design-centric uh, thinking and customer-driven design. And you are globally recognized as one of the leading firms in that area. I'm wondering, uh, you know, when you look back over the years at Nottingham Spurk, how has that, how has it changed in terms of the industry's demand for or appreciation for design-driven thinking? Well, you know, I don't know if, if it's changed as much as it's evolved. And, it, you know, any business evolves in, in accordance to what their customers and their customers' customers are wanting. And I think, you know, the design thinking and design, you know, it, it has to be agile, has to keep changing, has to keep looking forward. What what worked yesterday won't work tomorrow. So you just keep you keep uh, fighting and keep doing and keep creating and you know it keeps you it keeps you motivated. So the um, if you would explain, I mean, you're I don't know if this qualifies for the Guinness Book of World Records with the 1,300 patents and 95% are commercialized, but it's got to be close. Uh, share with us a little bit of your kind of secret sauce, if you will, and what, what, what you think has made you so consistent in that innovation process. Well, so innovation, first of all, innovation is hard. It's not easy. And what we've done and we've learned, and we've evolved what we call a, a vertical innovation process. Because when you create something out of nothing, you start with a blank sheet of paper or you start with a customer need, every one of them goes through a process. And this process starts with that idea and ends with a commercialization to a customer. And it's, it's a process from start to finish. And here's the thing. If it's an unbroken, if it's an unbroken process all the way through, it can be successful. The problem is when you pause or when when there's different groups, let me just as an example, uh, remember remember the the thing you did in school where you you whispered something in somebody's ear and then they whispered it and somebody else whispered Mm -hmm. or nobody else whispered. The telephone game. And whatever, whatever the story was at the beginning is totally different at the end. What happens in innovation is 
you have a, a separate team doing design and they throw it over the wall to an engineer and they do their engineering and they throw it over the wall to, you know, a prototyper and the prototyper throws it over to the wall to the toolmaker and the toolmaker throws it over the wall to a factory. By the time you end up, the designer doesn't recognize it all the way through. What we've done in Cleveland, we've created, again, a vertically integrated situation, both physically and, and uh, pro programmatically, where we start and we relentlessly go all the way to the finish. We have, it's funded all the way through, it's staffed all the way through, it's, it's a continuous line from start to finish. And that's why we have a 95% commercialization rate. And that's really the reason for that success. And, and I've seen it done other ways, and it's just it's not as effective. And I'll tell you how I learned it. Uh, about 20 years ago, I had the chance to visit Pixar Studios in, uh, on the West Coast. And if you read the story of Pixar, there's a book called uh, Innovation or uh, Creativity, Inc. by uh, uh, Ed Catmull who was the president of Pixar, but his partner was Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs, uh, you know, had, was the big investor in Pixar. And so they, they were able to, to lay out and create their headquarters. And their headquarters was designed around vertical integration. Uh, it, it, it had a central, if you read the book, it has a central core where everybody kind of goes together. There were stacked floors around the central core and the writers and the animators and the actors and all these always bumped into each other. And the directors, the producers would always interact vertically and they would, they would handle the whole process from start to finish. And Pixar has had an incredible success rate with their whatever they produce. Well, that made an, uh, an impression on us. And so when we moved into our, before we moved to our current facility, we were looking for that kind of a facility. And we found this uh, historic landmark church building that had a central core, stacked floors around it, and we could do design, engineering, prototyping, and so forth, even focus groups, bringing customers in and that sort of thing. And we found that we, if we put everybody together, we can, we can effectively go from start to finish. And I think that's, that is the reason for success. Well, I've been, uh, I've had the privilege of visiting your office. And so for any listener here that goes through Cleveland, give John a, a call because you, you definitely want to stop by and see it. It's really, really cool office. Well, our, our, our stakeholders and our, our client partners Call it the Disneyland of innovation. Absolutely, it is. So, you're, what? What are some of the? What would you say are some of the misconceptions or myths about that process that you have to? I'd imagine with some of your clients, there's potentially some education or some some barriers you have to kind of break through to get them to think a little differently. Yeah. Well, you know, the biggest one is this whole idea of stage gate, and and we have to pause, and we have to think about it, and we have to this, we have to that. In innovation, if you stop, it's dead. It's so hard to keep going all the way through. And this stop-start thing just doesn't work with innovation. You have, to, you have to be committed, you have to start, and then you have to relentlessly drive to the finish line, in my view. So you've recently announced a partnership with EY. 
So yeah. clearly they're recognizing this. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that partnership came together? EY Ernst & Young was actually founded in Cleveland. Of course, they're global. They're about a $38 billion uh, consulting and audit company. We actually, about three years ago, won the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award there, and we attended their annual conference in uh, Palm Springs. We got to know them, and they got to know us, and they were saying, whoa, we've never heard in, of anything quite like this. We talked about vertical in, in, our vertical innovation process. They came to visit us. They were intrigued. One thing led to another, and it's resulted in this partnership where we are currently on our west wing of our innovation center. We're currently under construction on the EY Nottingham Spurk Innovation Hub, and that's going to house their global center for advanced manufacturing and mobility right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Wow. So when is this going to be in uh, production, if you will? It will no. It'll be it'll open up this summer. We're gonna have a grand opening this summer. Okay. You ought to come up and see it. It is uh, it it's stunning. When, when you know through the pandemic, nobody was constructing anything, right? We have a big crane up here. It's uh, we're like working <laughs> hot and heavy. I mean, this is a big deal, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So your process, you apply it to both products and also business models, right? So you have a, a yes. wide variety and the process pretty much stays the same, correct? Well, the process is the process. You know, mm -hmm. the, you know it's funny. I, I, <laughs> I speak to, to MBA groups all the time in, in mm -hmm. the college, the graduate school level. And I, I always like to say, I always like to say, there's one thing that every business needs, every business needs, one thing. And and I uh, just give me one word, and they start shouting out capital. No, uh, an idea. No, a good management team. No, what is it? It's a customer. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have a customer. You're in business, really. Do you have mm -hmm. a customer willing to buy whatever you're you're selling. You're in business. When we start our when we start our process, we always start with the customer. To the point where we have we have a, a facility in house here with it's a focus group facility with a two way mirror. Uh, we bring our prospective customer in that room, and I have our designers, our engineers on the other side of the two way mirror, watching that customer, watching her her body language, watching her pain points, looking at the twinkle in her eye. She wanted the she may, she or he may not say what they're thinking, but you can read it on their face. And that's where we start, this qualitative idea of what a customer wants. And then we start from there. Then we go to design, engineering, prototyping in-house. We build the prototypes in-house. We find a factory domestically or around the world. We do the digital orientation. We do the packaging the commercialization plan, the business model, the whole thing, and get it to that customer in a relentless, fast way. So for the people listening, so they have an appreciation for this, because you're the products and customers that you've had is a very wide variety. So can you oh, walk yeah. us through a few examples just to kind of demonstrate the range of, of products that you've been involved in? Oh, my. Products well, that everybody knows. 
Well, the, one of the ones we're most famous for is that we had the idea and commercialization of the first mass market electric toothbrush, mass market. I'm sort of the Henry, we're sort of the Henry Fords of, of electric toothbrushes. You know, back in the day when Henry Ford was around, he, he did the Model T, he, he, he gave, you know, you know, cars to the masses. Well, back in our day, when we were looking at $100, you know, Sonicare toothbrushes, which are great, but who wants to pay $100 for a toothbrush? Well, we figured out a way to create the first $5 mass market electric toothbrush. And we started a company called Dr. John's Spin Brush Company. And I'm John, and John Spurk is John. And we had another John and a Larry, and we started the company. And we launched it independently. We sold it. We sold the, uh, the company to Procter & Gamble. And they rebranded it from Dr. John's to Crest. It became the Crest tooth, Toothbrush. We sold hundreds of millions, 37 countries around the world's most, most successful electric toothbrush of all time. That's one. And how about Dirt Devil? Dirt Devil was a very small company. We helped to grow it to 400 million. Uh, that was acquired. Hmm. We started with uh, Little Tykes when they were doing a million. That grew to 600 million. That got sold. You know, over the years, we've done, that's the kind of things we've done. Worked with Procter & Gamble and, and Unilever and Kimberly Clark and GE. So you had a good article on the six habits of innovative people. And yes. so for our audience, which consists mostly of entrepreneurs, can, can we go through those six habits? Because I think those are those. You sure. Yeah, yeah. So now, you, now you're going to make me remember that, aren't I you? Remember. <laughs> I can, I, can, I can prompt you. <laughs> so the first one, the, the first one, the clarity, clarity of vision and endless pursuit of knowledge. Yeah. So let me just say an overview. If you're yeah, in the sure. innovation business, like I am, I, I, I said, I, I wrote an article one time that said, innovation's not what you do on Thursday. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's Thursday. Let's be innovative. Innovation is what you do 24 hours a day. You relentlessly think it drives my wife crazy, by the way, when we're on a vacation, right? Because I'm always thinking about, oh, gee, what if we did this and this stop already? Okay. But, you know, I'm driving in the car, I'm commuting in, in, in here, uh, and I'm thinking about what, what, how, what we're going to innovate. Or I'm reading an article or I see a, a program on something where that's, that, you know, sparks my imagination and drive right into the innovation process. So I think it's, I like to talk to about relentless innovation. You just keep innovating, and it, that's what is in your mind. You live it. It's not and, something and is you your do. View, is your view that everyone in an organization should be involved in the innovation process, or it's, or it's relegated so. to some special lab? No, 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 no. It's, it's, again, Steve Jobs did this Pixar thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he famously said that, a small percentage of innovations come from structured meetings, you know, creative sessions and stuff. But more innovations come when you're casually thinking about something. You bump into somebody in the hall. You're taking a shower. You're driving through the through the countryside, and all of something, all of a sudden, something hits you. Almost every one of those thirteen hundred patents we talk of. I can remember the time when we got, we 
we nailed it. We solved it. Let's let's make it. It it, it hits you like a thunderbolt sometimes. But it's ongoing. It's relentless. It just you know it can drive other people crazy. But it's 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 what you do because you're always everything's always changing. The customer's changing. It's now especially in the last year with the pandemic. My gosh, I mean everything changed, and so you've got to be able to be agile and react to the change. You're back to your six habits of most innovative people. Clarity of vision. Second one that kind of relates to this: understand their understanding. They need help in order to build the vision. So, so well, that that comes with the team. Okay. Yep. You yep. have to have. I mean, I can't do everything, mm-hmm. and I don't want to. I mean, I've got a great team here. We've got 75 people on staff. They're very good at what they do, and I I respect and appreciate what they bring to the party. But we all work as a unit. You know, it's funny. I'm, as, as I mentioned, I'm on the board of the Cleveland Clinic. And the Cleveland Clinic it started out with four doctors. They, they're actually, they actually have their, their 100th anniversary this year. They started out with four doctors working as a unit. And in, for 100 years, they still work as a unit. Everybody in the Cleveland Clinic is on salary. Everybody in the Cleveland Clinic has a one-year contract and reviewed every year, including doctors, and they work as a unit, unlike other healthcare facilities. The only other one, the only major one that I know of is the Mayo Clinic. And last last week, the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic were voted the two top healthcare facilities, not just in the United States, in the world. Why? Because of the unit, because of the team. So we have this team here at Nottingham Spur where we work as a unit. We all have different talents and things. We have a, each, I think our average tenure is about 15 years or more. And, you know, we work together and, we, and, and we're in sync. You have to be when you innovate. So, so number three on your list is interesting then. So this, this kind of now goes on a little detour, which is generate excitement and remain a constant source of inspiration. Why is that important? You, well, because you're creating the future, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't been done before. I've been doing it all my career and it's still hard. And, but, but I, I, I look at, at the roadblocks, not as a roadblock, uh, but as a challenge to figure out how do I get beyond that roadblock? And, and we will, we always get beyond the roadblock. We always figure out how to do it, but they do pop up there. So number four large-scale thinking and a relentless desire to change the world. So this one yeah. This one reminds me of some of our job here in the Midwest, yeah, you know, which is kind of flipping the script. I always say yes. that yeah, you know, folks I know that you know that go out to Silicon Valley, what have you, you know, they 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 go there because they they believe that they're going to change the world. Yeah. Right? And we can do that here. And now more than ever, you can do it anywhere. You know, right? it's funny. Uh we're doing this CY uh EY Nottinghamsburg Initiative here in Cleveland. And I can't tell you how many people have said, oh, it's a breath of fresh air that something's happening in the Midwest. I love it. And then they look and say, wow, you've got a low cost of living. You've got, you've got a work ethic. You've got all the good things that are, that are in the Midwest. And we're not, we're not crowded by all this other stuff that you have on the coast, so to speak. And so I think the Midwest is is due for a real a real resurgence. You know, uh, you talk about Silicon Valley. I think 
Cleveland is going to be manufacturing valley or the valley of making things. We're going to start making things be, right because of factory 4.0. Again, this digitization of, of we're going to be reshoring. We're going to be doing things with automation, a different mindset. Uh, you're going from factory 3.0 to factory 4.0. Well, there's actually uh, Jeffrey Immelt, former CEO of GE, mentioned that uh, because of offshoring, you know, we've basically given up a, a generation of craftsmanship and know-how in terms of making That's things. Right. Yeah. But that but uh but that hasn't left Cleveland. Hasn't left Cleveland. There, there is a history not of, here at Nottingham Spurk, that's for sure. Okay, number five, open-mindedness and a willingness to change at any second. Any second. You know, we I walk in here every day and uh I'm open to what's gonna happen. How did you learn that lesson? How did you learn that lesson? I you know I, I guess I've always been like that. I've always been looking at what's next, what's next, what's mm -hmm. what's the next thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's funny. When the pandemic started about a year ago, everybody was buying hand sanitizer, right? And I and I noticed that <laughs> you have, you go to a hand sanitizer and you put your hand on the pump and pump the hand sanitizer. But what hand pushed that pump the last time was, it was used, especially in a public place? I'm going, this is not right. So we pivoted and we invented a no-touch hand sanitizer package where you can deliver the entire thing, but you put your hand there, it delivers the hand sanitizer, you do not touch it at all. And so we were able to produce it, launch it last year, and you can go to Lowe's and CVS and BJ's and so forth, and they're stacked to the ceiling. That's moving fast. And we're making millions of them right now. Wow. So that is something that, obviously, at the beginning of, of the pandemic, you had no idea how long it was going to last. No. So they, they took some commitment to say, hey, this is going to be around for a while. This is worth the effort. Well, you know, I think I think it's a better product anyway. I would rather not touch something that's going to dispense anyway. I don't go. care if there's a, a pandemic or not. It's just better. It's just better. Yeah. Great point. All right. And number six, hardworking and commitment to self-improvement. Always. Every time. You know, one of the things I, I was looking at somebody talking, talking about health and wellness and, and longevity. And they listed all those things. One of those was getting up every day with a purpose. That is a key to longevity. Think about it. You get up every day with a purpose. And we certainly do. And everything, everything is different. Every day is different. But self-improvement and, and pushing yourself out there uh, with, especially if you're an innovator in the innovation business, that's key. Yeah, and who does who doesn't want to be in that kind of business, right? So, what's well, fun? What would you share with other entrepreneurs as they think about their market market potential and market size? Because noticed everything you've talked about here so far, you're not talking about thousands of customers. You're talking about millions or tens of millions of customers. Yes, in the Sprint Brush, it was billions of customers, but I, that, wow. I digress. John Spurk, my partner, my able partner, says, and he, he's great at these little sayings. 
it's just as hard to develop a little idea as a big idea. <laughs> so great. if you're going to spend your time doing it, it might as well be a big idea. You want a big market. That's what's going to jazz people. You want to affect as many people as possible with your idea. You don't want a passion project. You don't want a little tiny market. You want a big market. And that's what we do. So how do we make sure that uh, as we think about, you know, we, we talked about the offshoring and um, we think about for the U.S., for this country, for us to continue to have that edge in innovation, what other advice would you share with, with uh, innovators and entrepreneurs around the country? Yeah. Well, all right. So, so think of how many thousands and thousands of factories we have in the United States. The vast majority is what I would call factory 3.0. They're basically, they're mechanical, they're somewhat computerized, but they don't talk to each other. Every one of those factories in the next 10 years are going to go from 3.0 to 4.0. Now, what's 4.0? You have a factory that all the machines are, are automated. They're digital. They all talk to each other. They use AI. There's something that the, the person running the factory has in his office called a digital twin that basically that is a, it has elements on his screen that is a digital twin of every single device in the factory. If he wants to you know, play around with the, with the efficiency of the production, he can play around with it on his screen before it's used in the factory. And all of a sudden, everything is working. I think the next 10 years, we are going to have a renaissance in the United States to do manufacturing here. Technology is going to drive it, and it's going to be real exciting. So you mentioned Case Western Reserve. What, what should our universities be doing or thinking about to prepare that future workforce? That's a very good point. Everybody's talking about talent. You know, and, and they have to stop thinking about manufacturing as sort of this blue collar kind of a thing. It is high tech. It is, it is something that is a great profession to get into. And it's good to have, it's good to have hands-on experience. Now, University of Cincinnati in your neck of the woods has a great program, this co-op program where they have a a semester in class and then a semester in a company. I think that's wonderful. We actually recruit designers from the University of Cincinnati and have had a program here. Some of them have actually, not they're full-time employees here. That's the real world versus the academic world. And that the more you can get real world experience for students, the better off it is. Yeah, well, two of my kids went through that program and that yeah. interactive, immersive learning. And then when they go back to school, they, they can apply it. They can understand, oh, this is why I'm learning this stuff, right? Before, yeah, I think it's esoteric. wonderful. And part of what we're doing with the EY Innovation Center here is we're going to do an advanced manufacturing technology training center here for college students. Hmm. I know there's more initiatives going on within even the state of Ohio around AI and yes. the future of AI. And you think, okay, well, who needs to understand what AI is other than software developers? But well, you're you're pointing out right here. You need to. You may not. You may not be building the AI, but you yes. need to understand how it works. 
Well, AI is software. So yeah, we're, what we're doing is when, when we're developing a device, the software is something we're doing and the AI is something we're, we're building in that it come, goes hand in hand with what we're doing. John, thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion. You guys are doing so much cool work. I encourage everybody listening to go to your website, check it out, visit you if you're in Cleveland. Thank you very much for sharing with our audience today. Well, thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Brian Hopcraft, Managing Director at Lewis & Clark Ventures. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio. Marketing, content, and social media support from Content Callout. And our podcast platform is Casted.